next guest is yet another legend of journalism. He's in fact had a 60-year career and is still going strong. Daniel Shore appears regularly as a commentator for National Public Radio where he carries the title Senior News Analyst. Mr. Shore was hired for CBS television by Edward R. Murrow in 1953. Daniel Shore covered the Berlin Wall's erection from a post in Germany and later worked with Walter Cronkite. His coverage of Watergate for the CBS Evening News won him three Emmys. After departing CBS News in the late 70s, Ted Turner turned to Daniel Shore for his Cable News Network, where he worked until 1985. He's won a Peabody Award, a Polk Award, and a DuPont Columbia University Golden Baton, which is broadcasting's equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. He's also in the Hall of Fame of the Society of Professional Journalists. Well, Daniel Shore, welcome to Radio Parallax. My pleasure. You were hired by Edward R. Murrow at CBS in 1953 after reporting for several U.S. newspapers. Did you know right away you were joining an extraordinary team of reporters with men like Howard K. Smith and Charles Collingwood? Oh, yes, absolutely, because before I reported for CBS, I did some reporting on the radio for ABC. And then at one point, I went to London to talk to Howard Smith, who was then the London bureau chief of CBS. And I said, gee, I'm learning a little bit about radio but I think I'd rather work for Morrow's network, even as a stringer. And so what happened, and this was before I was hired, this was 1951, uh, Howard Smith arranged for me to be taken on as a stringer in Western Europe, with the result that eventually, because he heard me on the air, uh, Morrow sent me that uh, famous cable, would you at all consider joining the staff of CBS? And of course the answer was, absolutely. The big, the big decision was not whether it would be uh, CBS or ABC or NBC. My big decision was, and it's hard to explain it uh, this many years later, but in those days not everybody accepted radio. It didn't seem to be quite respectable, the kind of thing sports announcers did and such. Mm-hmm. And so my real decision was whether to leave uh, respectable newspaper work and go in for something which was a, a form of entertainment, which was radio. In spite of the fact that people were won over and the majority of Americans got their um, news through radio in World War II, at least so it's been reported, there was still a little bit of a taint hanging over it, I guess. That is right. It was simply because of the origin of radio news. When radio started, uh, it was mainly an entertainment medium. There were quiz shows. There there were uh, various kinds of amusement shows and so on. Uh, News in radio came in a little bit later. And in fact, was almost brought in by Ed Murrow, whose first job was arranging for musical groups to perform for CBS, the Vienna Boys Choir, uh, the Interlochen Chorus, and all of that. He was not a journalist. He, his job was to uh, arrange uh, European appearances in music and chorus on CBS. It was only a historic accident that he became a journalist because uh, he happened to be in Europe when Hitler marched into Austria, and they had this idea of, hey, what would it be like for you to go to London and simply sort of tell on the radio what you saw? It was really an original idea at the time. The University of Washington in, in Seattle collected all the wartime CBS tapes, illegally, because Paley didn't want the soft tape the funniest bit of tape during the whole war. I said, sure. And they played for me uh, Charles Collingwood, 
who had been landed on Utah Beach uh -huh. with a 60-pound battery pack on his back. Uh, and because they, they couldn't get a, a two-way signal, it was arranged that at precisely a certain moment on his watch, he would start talking, giving an ad-lib description of what he was seeing, and then at the end of 15 minutes, he would toss it back to New York, okay. Bob Trout, I think. And so, as it happened, the part of the beach that he landed on wasn't very active at the time. So he started talking, planes overhead, ships at sea, in the channel, and all the rest of it. And pretty soon ran out of material with about eight minutes left to go. But then saw a, a, a man in a Navy uniform uh, walking right towards him. And he thought, oh boy, here's somebody who may know more than I know. And he said, here, walk up and hello, excuse me, Commander. Uh, I am Charles Collywood of, of CBS News. I wonder if you can give me a more general picture of how the invasion is going. Next thing you hear is, piece of shit out of me, Charlie. I'm the NBC correspondent. <laughs> Excellent. And that is on tape. Well, I wish I wish that the um, the uh, World War II on the air CD set it included that portion of it. It has an earlier section of of that uh, of Charles Collingwood on Utah Beach, but neglected to put that part in. I, I guess they thought it you know, it didn't sound respectful, but I thought it was one of the greatest pieces of tape I've ever heard. <laughs> it's pretty good. See what was important about it, and the reason I have quoted it many times since is that whenever they talk about a conflict between the, the military and, and the press. I use this to remind them that there was a time when reporters wore uniforms. There was a war effort, and they were on the same side, and they ate in Army mess halls or Navy mess halls. And the reason that he thought it was a, a Navy officer is the man was in a Navy uniform, and he was in an Army uniform. With much talk today about censoring of broadcasts and the, man, and the Army or the Pentagon managing the news, I think people forget that... that uh, that Murrow's boys had to get everything cleared through a lot of censorship in, in World War II, even. Not only had to get everything cleared, the important thing is they were very happy to have everything cleared. Cause they, always, they thought they were fighting the same enemy, and they didn't want to do anything which would hurt the war effort. Sure. In those days, that, that's what's hard to bring back to people. The press and the military at one time were on very good terms. Right. And when, and when uh, for example, I just was reading in preparation for talking to you at that rooftop in London, the rooftop live broadcast of Morrow, in which he says, I'm speaking from a place which, for reasons of personal and national security, I cannot tell you. We have that, we have that, we have that CD segment. That's great. That's also a great piece of journalism. Oh, my God, yes. Of course, they were having to use shortwave radios in an era before uh, satellites, which we take for granted. Oh, that's right. We were shortwave radio, and you, we couldn't always count on it. And quite frequently, uh, yes, I, all you have to do is mention it. It comes back to my mind how many times I sat in the studios saying, Hello, New York. Hello, New York. And then I hear a lot of squeaking and squalling. And eventually, because let's, let's change the frequency that's not working so well. And it was touch and go at times whether you would get through it all. Now, I've noticed when I travel in other English-speaking uh, countries, TV news anchors are referred to as newsreaders. That's correct. Do you think we can credit Murrow for the fact that in America, we assume that a person in front of them has done more than uh, than trained to read a teleprompter? Yeah, well, I credit Murrow, except that I would not credit him so much as blame him. I really think that uh, the anchor people are newsreaders, right. uh, for the most part, reading scripts off a teleprompter, which they haven't even uh, written for the most part. 
And I think it's more accurate to say newsreader than to, to say anchor or host or whatever. You've written uh, in, in Bob Edwards' new book, uh, Edward R. Murrow and the Birth of Broadcast Journalism, that he captured the Murrow you knew, despite the fact that they'd, uh, they'd never met. Many people have tried to capture Murrow. What qualities uh, about him do you think that book gets right? Well, there was, for example, not, not, not a, there have been several books on Murrow, and not everybody captures a side of, of Murrow which was a dark side. There were times in which he'd go into a, a mood where he would cut hardly speak to you, and if you addressed him in the usual joking way, he'd say yes and well. Yes. And, so, and you sort of wonder what was going on inside him that made him cut himself off from you at certain times. Only at certain times. I don't want to indicate that it, that was the general Morrow. The general Morrow, who was really a, a very affable and friendly person. But this would happen. And I think long after the event, I've come to the conclusion that he had, uh, he had cancer long before any of us knew that he had cancer. Yeah. And that, that it was a kind of behavior that would go with somebody who was in pain. And I now suspect uh, that he was in pain earlier and longer than we ever knew. Now, you joined uh, Murrow's team in 1953. Joe McCarthy was at his height of his power at that time. That's right, my first assignment. I gather that you became Moscow bureau chief for CBS while it was maintaining a fiction that there was no such post due to fear of McCarthyism, even though McCarthy was himself finished by then. It may seem weird. I, 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 went, to, uh, I went to Moscow in 1955 and operated from a hotel. Operated means that I had a translator assigned to me by the government, and we did some filming with a camera which I learned to operate. And then finally, it came time to, to tell the CBS, we have to have a normal bureau like everybody else, and here is the budget for such a bureau. And Sig Mickelson, who was the head of CBS News, uh, cabled back to me saying he couldn't, he would talk to me when he came to Moscow to see me, but I should hold up on writing a budget for the bureau. And he came to Moscow, and he said, I, I don't know how to tell you this, it's, it's quite embarrassing. We have a couple on the CBS board, not CBS News, but on the board of CBS, there are a couple of, of very hard-line anti-communists, and they think it's too soon after McCarthy to have, listen to this, it's too soon after McCarthy to have a CBS Moscow bureau listed in the CBS directory. Incredible. Incredible. And, and uh, is that serious? He said, well, I'm afraid it is serious because it comes from board members who have a lot of clout. And the result of that was that for the two and a half years that I worked in Moscow, I lived in a hotel and an office in another hotel room uh, across the way. And uh, it worked out very well for me because I said to them, if I'm going to be in a hotel, I have to treat this as a temporary assignment which means I expect all my expenses to be paid. And they did. Good. So somebody benefits from McCarthy. <laughs> well, you, you, you irked your Soviet hosts by, uh, by your, um, your journalistic standards, I gather, in the 1950s. And uh, you've, you've battled a lot of people as you've sought to be the reporter you thought you should be. Um, the list is pretty impressive. Dwight Eisenhower got mad at you when you scooped him on John Foster Dulles' resignation. Somebody wrote in, a, in an article about me that he's the only known person to have been in trouble with both the FBI and the KGB at the same time. <laughs> well, John Kennedy thought you were too German when you were covering uh, events from Berlin. 
Right. Uh, Richard Nixon hated your Watergate reports. That's famous. Uh, the CIA and Congress didn't appreciate your publishing a report on assassinations they were trying to bury. Before you really had done your homework. Yeah. And your boss at CBS, William Paley, thought you went too far. Um, what, what battles stand out uh, as the toughest? The, the battle that stands out as the toughest, really, was the battle in 1976 when I acquired a report of a House Intelligence Committee uh, that was supposed to be published, but the House voted to suppress it. And I obtained a copy of it and decided that if I had the only copy in the free world, it was my responsibility to see that it was published, which I did. And I caused something of a furor, which ended up with my being subpoenaed before the House Ethics Committee, which was investigating the leak and asking me, where did I get it? And I explained to them, as a lot of people have explained since, uh, in matters of this kind, that the First Amendment protects me. I cannot give you a source to which I have promised confidence. And they said, yes, but uh, we are conducting an inquiry and we need to know the source. And if you refuse to give it, uh, we can hold you in contempt of Congress with a two-year prison sentence and a $100,000 fine. And I gulped, and I said, I still can't. And in the end, after a day-long hearing, which was live on television, uh, they went into a private session and decided they voted six to five not to hold me in contempt. Well, journalists everywhere owe you. CBS, which had been very mad at me for causing all the trouble, now invited me back. Suddenly I had become uh, a First Amendment hero, and everything changed. But I decided that uh, it was time for me to leave. Your coverage of Watergate earned you three Emmy, Emmy Awards and uh, the, dis the dislike of Richard Nixon. He went so far as to compose an actual formal list of what he conceived to be enemies. And I've read that you were actually handed a list while you were on the air and were reading it, not knowing that at number 17 was the name Dan Shore. Yes, that was, that, that, that was, that was probably the most uh, exciting uh, moment that I spent in radio and television. It was... We were, co we were covering the Senate Watergate hearings live, gavel to gavel, and sometimes said the committee would go out to vote or something, and we were left to fill time. Uh, so I was outside the Senate caucus room when the hearings were going on, along with uh, Sam Donaldson for ABC and Douglas Kiker for NBC, and we would fill a lot of time when time had to be filled. On this day, John Dean testified before the committee that he had been in charge of drafting a list of enemies, and he submitted the list in evidence, but he didn't read it. And so the next thing was we all ran outside to our cameras and sent people to try to get copies of it. Each one wanted to be the first to be on the air with it. And so finally, one of my assistants came and handed me a copy while I was talking on the air. I said, here it is. Here is the first <laughs> list of Nixon's enemies, what does it say here? Uh, this is enemies of Nixon, a list, a numbered list of 20. Uh, let me read down, I haven't seen this, but let me read down for you. And I read down, and I, there was Paul Newman was there, good company. And then, and then I said, and number 17, gulp, Daniel Shore. And then it says next to it, a real media enemy. Number 18 was Mary McGrory, so I was really, as I looked at it, I was, I was in very happy shape, except 
I didn't know what that list meant. Now, it, it did happen that for the first and only time in my life, um, my income tax was audited. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. <laughs> and I don't know what else they might have had in mind for me, but by the time they started getting ready to do it, he was in enough trouble, so he had to look to it to himself and not what he was going to do to others. Right. But yes, to, if, if you've ever had to read live on the air something which you haven't seen, which has your name in it, in something like that, it is an unbelievable experience. I can only imagine. We're speaking with Daniel Shore, senior news analyst for National Public Radio and journalistic legend. You said, Mr. Shore, I've devoted a very, very long career to trying to find out what happens in the world and then trying to explain it to people who need to know. Right. Is this attitude vanishing in the modern world of infotainment? Yes, it is. And that's the, that's the reason that I stress it. I think you're quoting from something when I was asked for a few words by who's who when they printed, they wanted to have a few words about me that typified my life. We used to be what I gave as, as my, as my uh, slogan, and that was to find out what government will not tell them and that they need to know. I've changed it in the past couple of years. I now have something else. I say people get all kinds of information from all kinds of sources. They need interpretive journalists to tell them what it means. And what's happened is that, that now you do get saturated with information, thanks partly uh, to the Internet. And it's not very difficult to get information anymore, except those things which are highly classified, secret, and that kind of stuff. But on the whole, I think people need interpretation more than they need another amount of facts. Uh, there's a question I, I couldn't bring myself to ask Bob Edwards, but I'd like to ask you. Um, does Bob Edwards being replaced at Morning Edition remind you of what happened at CBS when Walter Cronkite was replaced? Well, no. Um, when Walter Cronkite was replaced... Uh, it was because he had had a very open argument with the, with Bill Paley and Frank Stanton uh, about what they should be doing. Uh, there was there was not, to my knowledge, any open quarrel between Bob and uh, and NPR. And I must tell you that when it happened, I had a lot of trouble understanding it. I have now come to believe that it is part of some idea of refreshing the network appealing to younger people by having younger people and so on. God, I must say, as I say that, if they're looking for younger people, I'd better start worrying. <laughs> we might want to mention at that juncture that uh, one of your colleagues, Richard C. Hotlet, is still writing for the Christian Science Monitor and writing rather well. Yes, and so am I. <laughs> yes, yes, you are. <laughs> um, do, do you speak with Mr. Hotlet? Uh, not recently. I was at a some part here in Washington with him a year or so ago. I mean, we were never, we were colleagues, but we were never close friends. As a matter of fact, we had some royal arguments on the air at times on, on Morrow's show because I thought he was a little right-wing for my taste, and we, we got into arguments on the air. So I cannot speak of Dick as a friend of mine. He's a thoroughly professional guy whose views um, did not agree with mine and therefore were automatically wrong. <laughs> well, I can assure you, my next trip down to the Museum of Broadcasting, I'm going to look at some of those old shows with uh, with with Murrow uh, hosting all of you, uh, all of Murrow's boys going at it. I hear they're really something. Yes, yes, we, we we've not had anything like it since. I mean, the, the the names, some of the names aren't known anymore. I don't know if anybody knows Alex Kendrick, who was one of the best, but not as famous, say as Charles Collingwood and 
and it was David Schongren for 14, 15 years, Paris correspondent. He was considered to know more about France than de Gaulle did. That was the day when correspondents were assigned to places and they came recognized experts on the countries and the areas they were sent to cover. Now you go flying in, do some voiceover, some film, get out, and all. Uh, and what you're not getting is the expertise that CBS correspondents had. I, uh, in my case, I became a resident expert on the Soviet Union. And it was very useful to have, to have somebody who knew a little more than was in the papers. I guess in Halberstam's... Um the powers that be, he describes the 67 war where uh, where uh, Richard C. Hotlet goes on the air, Winston Burdett is in Israel, and the men ad-lib uh, their encyclopedic knowledge for the public, uh, astounding everybody with, with how how well they could step into a situation like that. Oh, absolutely. And, and Winston Burdett, there was a time when they were, a new pope was being chosen, and uh, they, were, they were live on radio from St. Peter's Square. There he was. Uh, reporting live on the air, waiting for the puff of smoke to come out that denoted that there was a new pope, and he talked for something like an hour and a half without, you know, without ever hesitating. It's, it's so full of background and material, uh, Burdett, that you could uh, you could not believe uh, what that guy could do. Well, that, uh, people can't do that anymore. Wow. They were the, they were the best, as Bob Edwards has rightfully noted. You know, they're the best, and that. They started it, they established the, the standard for it, and there isn't much of that around anymore. Now, you, uh, you plainly enjoy your work for National Public Radio. You've said that, uh, that uh, if Ed Murrow was alive, he'd be at NPR today. I think that's true, because uh, it fulfilled his requirement that it, that it be performing public service and not be terribly interested in, in, commercial, in commercial money. And I, yes, I do. I, I, I am convinced that uh, having made as much money as he wanted to make from his CBS days and his CBS shares, that if he were alive and was leaving, he might not have gone to work for uh, President Kennedy as uh, director of USIA. He might very well have been with NPR. At least, listen, maybe I'm just dreaming, but I like to dream that way. In preparation to speaking with you, I went on the web and found uh, your All Things Considered commentary on Bush versus Gore, the Supreme Court's 5-4 to four vote. Uh, that was quite controversial. I, uh, I want to thank, by the way, the right-wing uh, anti-NPR people for maintaining that site so that I could hear it and others could hear it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very hard-hitting and, in my opinion, nails what happened. You took flack for phrases like judicial coup and the fix was in, but uh, what a great piece. My favorite line, which I'm not sure I would, uh, I would do again, that uh, that uh, Bush was elected by the Gang of Five. Well, but isn't it the truth? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I, I I noted that uh, in 1964, when you when you had a story on Barry Goldwater's affiliation to a right wing German group, that Paley was mad at you, wanted to see you fired, and that uh, your boss was asking your colleagues, "What should I do?" And um, what seemed to be a mitigating factor was that the story was true. Uh, the story was absolutely true. What happened is that there were a couple of other incidents that led Goldwater to think that Paley had it in for him. And that was particularly because Paley was a friend of Eisenhower, and Eisenhower w was opposing the nomination of Goldwater. So if you see those things and put them together, it is very easy to come up with a big conspiracy. And then if a reporter reports from Germany... That, uh, that, that Goldwater, as soon as he's uh, nominated, is going to fly off 
for a uh, holiday in Berchtesgaden, which happened to have been Hitler's favorite place. Those facts are all true. But when you put them together, he didn't like the way they were put together. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, so he got very mad at Pele and barred CBS from his suite in the San Francisco convention. And, uh, and the odd thing was when uh, finally I resigned or was fired by CBS. I'm not quite sure how you would put it. And then I went to interview Paley for my book, telling him I would tape it and would quote him exactly. And my first question to him was, Mr. Paley, why did you want to get rid of me? <laughs> and he says, well, Dan, I've been trying to get rid of you since 1964, but they wouldn't let me. Do you find it surprising how little uproar there was over that Supreme Court's decision? Uh, you, you, you staked a position out, which I think holds up very well looking back at it this many years later, but uh, America didn't seem to, to rise up in anger. That, 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 is, that is why I'm very sad about the state of America. I mean, it is unbelievable that we, with, we have three branches of government and uh, the, uh, elections are held and decided by the states. And to step into the Supreme Court and negate what the states are doing in the way of electing and say, we'll, we'll tell you whom you elected. I cannot believe that this thing happened in our country. Are you alarmed at the state of investigative journalism as it exists today, both in electronic and the print medium, when you read that... Uh, very much so, very yeah. much so. We get, uh, uh, the, uh, the whole generation of real, real journalists is about over, and now you're getting people who are learning to edit film, learning to edit tape, uh, they're learning a lot of very useful skills on the mechanical side, but there's something lacking on a, 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 of a world view that makes you write informatively. A majority of communications majors now go to work as corporate spokesmen. Daniel Shore, thank you so much. And sure hopefully thing. we can speak again sometime. I hope so. All righty. We would have liked to have gotten him for this uh, this program, but God knows where we would have fit him. Richard C. Hotlet is actually the last of the Murrow boys from the World War II era who's still active. Richard C. Hotlet still writes, and he writes very well for the Christian Science Monitor. Our uh, friend at Minnesota Public Radio, Vince Winkle, believes that uh, he can contact Richard C. Hotlet for us. We will try to do that, and we will certainly try to bring him on this program again in the future, particularly since on our upcoming 60th anniversary of D-Day, the actual anniversary of which is Sunday, we would like to play for you Richard Hotlet's contemporaneous report from the beaches of Normandy. The Allied forces landed in France early this morning. I watched the first landing barges hit the beach exactly on the minute of each hour. I was in a ninth Air Force marauder flying at 4,500 feet along 20 miles of the invasion coast. From what I could see during those first few minutes, there was nothing stopping the assault parties from getting ashore. We spent about half an hour over enemy territory. We flew over and bombed some of the coastal fortifications... But except for some light flak from inland positions and from some tanks firing at us, we saw no enemy gunfire. The only other sign of life in enemy territory were some white and yellow parachutes dotting the ground where our paratroopers had hit the ground. Yes, you can say why we'd be anxious to have Richard C. Hotlet come and talk with us. And after 100 shows, I need to uh, have my producer, Mr. Edward McMillan, 
take a bow. Uh, we, an awful lot of pre-production goes into many of our efforts here on this program, and we absolutely couldn't do it without him. That is it for today's program. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Stay tuned for Todd, and we'll see you next Thursday with Ambassador Joe Wilson.